Happy Sunday, West Village family. How's it going? How's it going out there in internet land? Um, big welcome to you if you're new and joining us. Uh, my name is Chris, uh, one of the leaders here at West Village. I have the joy and privilege of teaching and preaching the Bible with you today. If you have a Bible, grab it and open it up. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. We are working through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse. We love to teach through books of the Bible. And obviously today is a little bit different than normal. We thought we were going to mix things up. As Nathan already alluded to, uh, we're in a different setting. It's beautiful out here. Uh, lake behind us, God's creation all around us. Uh, and very fitting as we go to the scriptures uh, to be in God's creation. One of the ways that God makes himself known to us is through what we call revelation. And there's two kinds of revelation. One is general revelation. General revelation is uh, like what the psalmist would say, where the heavens declare the glory of God. You look out at the world and you think, this is beautiful. Like somebody must have made this. And, and that's what we see all around us. Uh, all around us. Uh, but then there's also special revelation. Uh, and special revelation is when God speaks in a unique and particular way. And that's what we have here in the word of God. Uh, this is called... Uh, the Bible, we call this the Bible, and this is the Word of God. It's his special revelation, and it reveals to us uh, who Jesus is. And Jesus says, by knowing who he is, we can know who God is. He himself is God. We're going to see that today as we come to this text. But, but through the Word of God, we can actually know who God is. So if you have a Bible, go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Uh, and we are going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 21. And here's what Matthew records about Jesus in verse 21 of chapter 16. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So where we find ourselves in Matthew's gospel at this point, chapter 16, as we've been saying, is a bit of a hinge chapter, a very significant chapter, where Jesus is going to go from a region called Galilee, where he did much of his ministry, much of his teaching, his preaching, uh, his healing, uh, kind of revealing who he is to people. And now he's transitioning out of that region and moving towards Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where he's going to go to the cross, where he's going to lay down his life. But in chapter 16, there are a number of moments where Jesus does something that he has not done up to this point. Uh, and what we see here is that it says in chapter 16, verse 21, that Jesus began to explain to his disciples. Uh, what we see here in chapter 16, specifically the verses we're going to look at today, Jesus starts to have a bit of an insider conversation uh, with his disciples about who he actually is. Up to this point, not that Jesus has been ambiguous about who he is, but to some degree, he's, he's kind of been careful about revealing the very essence of why he's come and who he is, be, because ultimately Jesus does not want to be misunderstood and misconstrued. But what we see here in verse 21 is that Jesus makes it abundantly clear why he has come. Look at what it says in verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus says, the reason that I've come is to lay down my life. The reason that I've come is to go to the cross. The reason that I have come is to be resurrected to life and there's this beautiful reality that we see here. This is the first time where Jesus has made it very clear to his disciples who he is. 
He does this four times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but this is the first time where he, he moves from the somewhat ambiguous to the very specific. And what I want you to know about Jesus, and there's this beautiful truth that we see here, is that he indeed came to give up his life that he came and willingly laid down his life. Jesus says this in Matthew's gospel. He says, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down and I take it up when I see fit, as I see fit. Did Jesus, uh, did he, uh, you know, was he tried as a criminal falsely? Yes. Did he, uh, did he get crucified by the Roman government and by the elders and the religious leaders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law? Yes, indeed. But make no mistake about it. Jesus, he offered up his life. He gave up his life as a sacrifice. He came to die for sin. He came to rescue and redeem God's people. He came to do this because he loves us. And I want you to notice a word that Matthew uses to describe what Jesus did. It says that he must. Jesus says, I must. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer many things at the hands of the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and I must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And the question is, why? Why must he do this? Well, if you remember last week in chapter 16, I believe it's verse 19, Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of death or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the reason that Jesus must suffer, the reason that Jesus must go to the cross, the reason that Jesus must be buried, and the reason that he must be raised again to new life is because it is that act, it is that act that Jesus endures, goes through, willingly participates in, that will allow him to overcome the gates of hell, the gates of death, the gates of Hades. Jesus himself says of himself in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 that he holds the keys to death in his hands. That because of his death on the cross for our sins, that because of his burial in the tomb for three days and because of his resurrection to new life, he indeed has overcome the gates of hell. Amen, church? That we have nothing to fear. Our guilt has been taken away. Our shame has been taken away. Our sin has been forgiven. And just as Jesus died, we too will one day die. But for those of us who have put our faith and our hope in Christ, just as Jesus rose, we too will rise. We will rise with him. That this is not the end. That because of what Jesus has done, death does not have the final word over our lives. And Jesus does all of this ultimately to be obedient to the will of the Father that he must suffer to rescue and redeem God's people, that this has always been his plan. As the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, that God predestined this before the foundations of the earth. This is not happenstance. This is not coincidence. This is not something unfortunate that happened to Jesus. This is revealing to us the very heart of God that he loves us, that he cares about us, that he wants to have relationship with us. He loves you, church. If you're, if you're just new with us, listening in, as there have been many people uh, doing since we've gone online, you, you maybe have never heard this before, but, but God loves you. 
And he demonstrates that for us in the person and work of Jesus, in the fact that Jesus was willing to die, willing to suffer in our place for our sins. It was, it was God's way of revealing to us his loving kindness and grace. He must suffer. He must die. He must lay down his life and he must be raised again. And then look at the disciples' response. This is the first time they've heard that. And here we see in verse 22, we see the response of one of the disciples in particular, Peter. He says this, Matthew records this rather in verse 22. Peter took him aside, him being Jesus, and he began to rebuke him. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. I want you to just note the irony, okay? Here we have Jesus, right? Son of the living God. That's actually what, what Peter refers to him as in verse 17, just a few verses earlier. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Je Peter's starting to get this idea of who Jesus is. And then he comes along to Jesus and he rebukes him. Now, there aren't a ton of rules in Christianity, despite what you may think. There aren't a ton of rules, but, but there's one rule, and that is don't, don't rebuke Jesus. Never a good idea to rebuke Jesus. But that's what Peter does. Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. And look at what he says. He says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Jesus reveals to the disciples, he reveals to Peter uh, why he's come. I'm going to lay down my life. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to lay down my life on the cross. I'm going to be raised to life. Peter hears this and he's like, no, I, I, that's not, that can't be. There's no way this could possibly be. What you have to understand is at this point, Peter belonged to uh, the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel had been longing, they'd been waiting for a Messiah to come, one who would rescue and redeem and restore God's people. Uh, but over time, what ended up started, starting to happen is that the people of God actually had a very particular idea of what this Messiah would do, uh, that he would come and he would free them, the, the people of God from uh, the tyranny of those who had rule over them. At this point in uh, this historical moment in the history of God's people, it was the nation of, of Rome. Rome had authority over God's people. They were ruling over them. And what Peter's vision for Messiah was, was one who would come and restore Israel to the greatness that they once had. Uh, to borrow a phrase, and believe me, it's not lost on me how loaded this term actually is, that they would, you know, this Messiah would come and make Israel great again. Restore them to economic supremacy. Restore them to political supremacy. Give them power and influence and global domination. And this was Peter's vision. And so Jesus comes and says, well, actually, here's the kind of Messiah I am. I'm going to actually lay down my life. Um, I'm not going to take up the sword. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Peter hears that. He says, it doesn't make any sense because that's not the Jesus I'd, I've always thought would come. That's not the Messiah that I thought would come. And it's so interesting. I mean, it's it's not that uncommon, actually, that when we look at Jesus, we, we have all these ideas of what he's supposed to be like. Uh, we start to impute onto Jesus who we want him to be. All right, some of us want a Jesus who, uh, who's going to, you know, be, be loving, gracious, and tolerant of all people all the time. Well, like last week, we looked at a text of scripture where, where Jesus declared himself to be the only way to God. And some of us hear that idea of Jesus, we don't like it. We don't like it. We, we don't want a Jesus like that. We want a Jesus 
who's going to always agree with, with us regardless of our position. Or we want a Jesus maybe who will come on, agree with us, and, and, and smite our enemies. Uh, the bottom line is, for so many of us, and this is very common in our world today, uh, we, we take Jesus and we form him into our own image and our own likeness. Rather than letting Jesus reveal to us who he is, rather than accepting him on the terms that he gives us, we try and conform him and form him into an image that we like. And that's what Peter's doing here. And as Tim Keller says, uh, if your God always agrees with you all the time, there's a really good chance that you made him up. And so Peter has this conflict where, you know, Jesus says, this is who I am. And, and he's saying, I'm not sure I like it. Now look at what Jesus says back to him. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So Peter's day is getting uh, worse here as it goes on, right? First he rebukes Jesus and then Jesus calls him Satan. If Jesus calls you Satan, day's not going so hot for you. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And you, don't have the, you, uh, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, is Peter, the way that you're understanding who I am and the way that you're framing me, it's not actually the mind and the heart of God. Now, don't miss the irony here. Jesus calls Peter a stumbling block. Just a few verses earlier, Peter was declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter or Jesus rather declared Peter uh, to be uh, the, the rock on whom the church will be built. And now Jesus is calling him a stumbling block. I mean, this is good news for some of us, right? It's possible to have a day where you're just loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. And then the very next day, you're not feeling like you're doing such an awesome job at following, loving and serving Jesus. You're yelling at your kids. You're frustrated with your spouse. It's okay. It's okay. This is the life of the Christian. But it gets even more significant here because look at what Jesus says. He says, you do not have the mind, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What is Jesus saying here? Uh, well, remember, we have these two conflicting views of who Jesus is. On one hand, we have verse 21, which, which is Jesus declaring that he is the one who's going to come and he must suffer. He must, he must suffer and go to the cross. He must be raised to new life. And then on the other hand, we have Peter's vision of what Messiah looks like, which is one who's going to raise the nation of Israel to power, dominance, and influence. And what's happening is Peter is starting to, to mix these two ideas. This idea of the kingdom that Peter has in his mind with the kingdom that Jesus has actually come to establish. And don't miss, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Saying, Peter, you have merely human concerns. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. You see, we have to wrestle with this a little bit, but there is this reality that God's kingdom is different than our kingdom. That the kind of king that God is, is different than the kind of king we want him to be. You see, Peter hears of a king who's going to come and suffer, go to the cross. Peter says, 
No. And notice what Jesus refers to him as, verse 22, verse 23, sorry. He calls him Satan. He calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters, he gets led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And in the wilderness, he has this uh, encounter with Satan, who tempts him for 40 days. For 40 days, Jesus fasted and prayed, and for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. And there's three specific temptations that Satan brings before Jesus, and all of them are the kind of temptations that, that Peter's describing when he has this vision for Messiah. Satan tempted Jesus with power. He, uh, he tempted him with influence. He tempted him with wealth. And at the very core, the very heart of Satan's temptation was this, if you just give up the cross, I'll give you all of this. See, what Satan was offering Jesus was a kingdom without a cross. What Peter wanted for Jesus and for himself was a kingdom without a cross. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't work like that. My kingdom is different than your kingdom. I'm a different kind of king. And then there's this reality that, that Peter has to wrestle with where he has to let his ideals die so that he can conform to the kingdom that Jesus is putting out in front of him. Now, in the moment that we find ourselves in, and this is, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm running the risk of stepping on some toes here. But in the moment we find ourselves in, I feel like the tension that Peter feels, this tension between his longing for a political Messiah and then the, the reality of what Jesus is putting out in front of him by declaring that he must come, he must suffer, he must die, is very much something that we are wrestling with as a people right now. In many ways, this is a little bit of an insider talk for, uh, for those of us who identify as Christians. Uh, but the moment we find ourselves in right now is an incredibly politically charged moment. It feels like everything about our world right now has become political. Politics is just ratcheting itself up and it's become so intense. It could just be because uh, for a large portion of our world, you know, we don't have a lot going on. We're in lockdown. We're stuck in our homes. We're, we're on social media all the time. But, but it seems like everything has become political. And to some degree, many of these issues that we're facing, the COVID issue, uh, you know, whether to wear masks or not, the, 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 the racial injustice issue, these, these all do have political implications for us to be sure. But it feels like the moment we're in right now is so politically charged. And what, what I feel like I see when I look out in the world is this mixing or this conflation of our political visions with the kingdom of God regardless of what your position is, regardless of where you stand, regardless of who you vote for, there's this sense in which Jesus is being co-opted for political means. It's dangerous. The reality is Jesus, he's not 
He's not beholden to a political party. He's not beholden to a political ideology. There isn't one political party that has the corner on Christianity. In fact, I would suggest for all of us on some level in this moment in particular where things are so so heated and so intense that there should be a, a feeling in which we feel politically homeless. In fact, the Apostle Peter in, in 1 Peter, Peter who Jesus is talking to right here, when he refers to uh, the Christians who are called to live in the world, he actually reminds them as he writes to the church in Asia Minor that this world is not their home, but their citizenship is in heaven. Am I suggesting that uh, as Christians, we should not be involved in politics? By no means. It's not at all my suggestion. But, but what I am saying is we have to be careful not to conflate our political ideas and ideals with the gospel. Uh, as I was preparing for this, I, I kind of had this uh, thought come to mind. I feel like it comes to mind every once in a while and I throw it out on social media just to see what will happen. And sure enough, every time I throw it out, a firestorm starts. And so I put out on social media this, uh, this, this phrase, this math equation, Jesus plus politics equals politics. And it, it kind of went crazy and there's all kinds of, you know, arguing back and forth. And I, I try really hard not to get too involved in the fray. Uh, but somebody, part of our church, uh, Tim Sparrow commented on it. Now I want to read what he said because I think it's uh, really helpful and I think it makes a lot of sense in dealing with this issue and where Jesus fits within the political spectrum. Here's, here's what theologian uh, Tim Sparrow had to say. He said, the fact that Jesus is interested in politics is undeniable. I suspect that by ordering our affections, I suspect that the ordering of our affections, sorry, is a way through this current uh, cultural and political quagmire. By coming to Jesus as Lord and Savior and having his spirit come to dwell within us, we will inevitably be moved to be interested in politics. But to believe that our interests and his interests are aligned outside of this abiding communion is dubious at best and dangerous at worst. There is a reality that we have to wrestle with as Christians that what we are to be about is verse 21, that the son of man must suffer many things. The church is about Jesus. The church is about the cross of Jesus. The church is about the death of Jesus in our place for our sins. The church is about the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that that brings to our world. The church has to be always and only about making Jesus known in our city. That God's kingdom is separate and God as king is different than the kingdoms of the world and the kings of this world. And we are never to conflate our political ideas with the kingdom of heaven. We are about Jesus. We are about his mission. And to be about anything else and to make anything else our main priority puts us in standing with Peter and not with Jesus. Uh, but Jesus goes on and look at what he says in verse 24. 
says this, uh, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So again, Jesus is having this conversation with his most intimate followers. He's already painted this picture for them of what his mission is, that he has come to lay down his life. And here he lays out for them very specifically what it means for them to follow him. And he says three things. Look at what he says. He says, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. Uh, now, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. This is, this is really important because there is, a, there is a real intensity to Jesus's language here. Uh, when Jesus talks about this idea of taking up our cross, the cross is a Roman instrument of death. This is the very cross that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem to be crucified on, to have his life taken away from him, to lay it down on our behalf. And so what Jesus is not saying here is uh, that you are going to suffer, although suffering is etched into Jesus's calling, call to his disciples here. Jesus is saying something much more significant, much more uh, radical than just you will suffer. He's saying you must actually die. Now, he's not talking about a physical death, but he's talking about this reality that in order to be his disciple, the self, you, yourself, must die. You must deny yourself and take up your cross. As one, uh, one author wrote about this verse, Jesus is, is saying the self must be liquidated. And now when we hear that in the secular story that we find ourselves in, that doesn't sell very well. Uh, the moment we find ourselves in right now, the, uh, most people, when you, when you think about the self, most people would say that, that the way to find true fulfillment, the way to find self-actualization is not to deny yourself. It's not to liquidate yourself. It's not to, it's not to put to death the self, but it's to foster the self. We, li we live in this self-improvement culture where we think what we really need is to add a few things to the self. And when we add a few things to the self, we will experience the fullness of what it means to be human. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying the complete opposite of that. Uh, that the way to experience fulfillment isn't to, uh, to improve the self, but it's to deny the self. Uh, there was an 18th century uh, French philosopher named Jean-Jacques uh, Jean Rousseau. That's a great name, hey? Jean-Jacques Rousseau, say that. Kind of rolls off the tongue. <clears throat> And he had this idea that within each person, there is this, this inner self or this inner child. And uh, the problem was that the world and that culture and that experience has actually beaten down that inner self, that inner child. And the way that a person finds uh, self-fulfillment or the way that a person becomes actualized is to discover who that self is, discover the ways in which that self has been beaten down, and then you experience wholeness. You, you experience what it uh, truly means to be a person. And we see the fruit of that in our culture, don't we? Uh, we, we live in a, a moment right now where it's, where it's very obvious that, that everybody feels like they can define reality for themselves. That what it means to be a person can be defined by an individual, that gender, uh, sexuality, you name it, it can be defined by me. And the reality is that right now where we see ourselves is that the world is kind of screaming at each other. We're, we're screaming at one another 
asking to be validated by the rest of humanity. And when they reject us, when they, when they won't embrace our ideals, when they won't embrace what we define our reality to be for us, it leaves us feeling hopeless, helpless, and disheveled. It leads, leads us to be frustrated. It leads us uh, to push back. It leads to us becoming violent, whether that be socially violent out in the world or just being violent on social media. And a lot of what we're seeing in this current cultural moment that we live in is this idea of self-identity coming under fire. All of these identities are coming in collision with one another. And it's into that that Jesus comes in and he says, if you want to know, if you want to know what it means to follow me, if you want to know what it means to have a relationship with God, if you want to know what it means to truly be human, you have to not actualize yourself, but deny yourself. Put to death yourself. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when you look deep inside of yourself, you're not going to find an inner self that just needs a little bit of dusting up, a little bit of cleanup to become whole. You're going to look inside and you're going to find that what you have in there is not sufficient to sustain all the hopes and all the dreams of what it truly means to be human. And so Jesus comes into that and he says, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. So how does that work? How does that actually get us to the place where we feel fulfilled and know God? Uh, I'm going to tease this out a little bit, but if you have a Bible, flip over a few pages to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, what we have is the Apostle Paul writing, he's writing to a church in Ephesus, and he's giving them instruction on uh, on the marriage relationship. And, and I'm going to use this by way of analogy, but Ephesians chapter 5, picking up in verse 31, he says this, quoting Genesis chapter 2. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this in verse 32, This is a profound mystery, what I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So the Apostle Paul, writing about the marriage relationship, quotes Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we get this picture of Adam and Eve, uh, the first marriage between Adam and Eve, God performing the first marriage over them. And he says, a man will leave his mother and father, the two will be united, they will become one flesh. The Hebrew word there for the word flesh is the word akkad. And, and that word akkad literally means the, the complete union of two separate people. It's a literal picture of two becoming one. I have the joy and the privilege of, of doing weddings all the time. And, and I always preach out of uh, Genesis chapter two when I do a wedding, if, if the couple will allow me to. Uh, and, and when I'm trying to articulate this picture that God has for the marriage relationship, I kind of do this uh, kind of corny wedding joke thing where, where I talk about a, a wedding actually being about two funerals, uh, that two people are dying and one person is being formed out of the two. Uh, so a few weeks ago, I was at Jordan and Rebecca, Rebecca Gilbert's wedding. And, uh, and the way that I would frame this is like, there's no more Jordan and there's no more Rebecca. There's just Jorbecca. 
this new person is being built up between the two of you, that you are no more, you are no more, and this new one is created. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter two. The, the marriage relationship, that marriage scene in Genesis chapter two is nested within the creation account where God speaks and declares, let there be light. He, cre- he creates the cosmos. He creates uh, the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve. And in this moment, he's creating a new person between the two of them. And that's why the apostle Paul uses all kinds of language language in Ephesians 5 when he describes the marriage relationship that that husbands and wives are one that when you love your wife's body you're actually loving your own body because they're one they're one flesh they're one in every single way possible Uh, now what does that have to do with what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 16 well Paul at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 he uses this phrase this is a profound mystery a mysterion that's the Greek It's declaring to us the relationship between Christ and his church. It's it's a picture of what happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus. That's what marriage is a picture of. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 16, that you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, you must follow me. What he's saying is in order to come to me, you must die That self, that inner self, that inner child, that inner you, it's broken. It's not sufficient to sustain you. It's not sufficient to fulfill you and it must die. And then get this, when it dies, when you humble yourself and you're willing to let it die, when you're willing to deny yourself take up your cross and follow Jesus, here's what happens. He dwells within you. Christ himself, the one who made you, the one who knows you, the one who loves you, he dwells within you. And your true self is realized. You see, friends, the reason that Jesus calls us to give up ourselves is because he knows that we need him. And the reality is if we're honest and we look inside of ourselves, we know we're broken. We know we have need. We know we don't have what it takes to fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. And we can come to Jesus and experience his grace, experience his mercy. Listen to this, this is beautiful. The God of the universe actually dwelling within your heart. Don't you long for that? Don't you want that more than anything else? Jesus says the only way to get it is to actually lay down your life. And then he says this, I'll wind down with these last few verses. Verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Uh, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very soul? Or Or what can anyone give up in exchange for their soul? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man and his kingdom.
what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I understand that this is a big call. I understand that what I'm asking is a lot. But here's what you need to know. If you're willing to give it all up, you will actually save your soul. You'll save your soul in the sense that your sins will be forgiven. Your relationship with God will, will be restored. You're, you're, just as Christ died on the cross, your old self will die on the cross. And just as Christ is resurrected uh, to new life, you will be resurrected after you die to spend eternity with God. But, but it requires, it requires that you're willing to let go of your own life. You can try and hold on to it, but in doing so, you will lose it. But it's when you're actually willing to open your hand and let go, and in a sense, demonstrate that God, I trust you more than I trust myself. I believe in you more than I believe in myself. I believe you can satisfy more than I can satisfy. I believe you can save me. And I've been trying to save myself and I just can't do it. I let go. I let go. In doing that, you will actually save your life. I want to close by reading a parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Friends, what Jesus is offering us is it's treasure buried in a field. But what it requires is that we're willing to sell everything that we have in order to inherit Jesus and eternal life. Will you let go today? Will you let go of your life? And in so doing, will you come to Jesus? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you love us. You love us enough that you gave your life for us. You love us enough that you came from heaven to earth, laid down your life, went to the cross, raised to new life, but then you invite us into that. In the same way that, that you died, you call us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to follow you. Jesus, I pray for us that we would recognize that, that what you are offering is better than what we are holding on to. And that we would hold on to this life loosely that we would let it go. That we would give over all of ourself to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you.